We likewise define that the Holy Apostolic See and the Roman Pope hold the primacy throughout the entire world, and that the Roman Pope himself is the successor of Blessed Peter, the chief of the apostles, and the true vicar of Christ on earth. He is the head of the entire church, and the father and the teacher of all Christians, and that full power was given to him in Blessed Peter, by our Lord Jesus Christ, to feed, to rule, and to govern the universal Christian church. That comes from the Council of Florence, which is a council of the Roman Catholic Church in the 15th century. And in that council was referenced in another council that took place the following century, which said this, in this way, by the unity of the, with the Roman Pope, the Church of Christ becomes one flock under one supreme shepherd. That is the teaching of the Catholic Church, and no one can depart from it without endangering his entire faith and salvation. So then, if anyone says that the Roman Pope does not possess the full and supreme jurisdiction and power over the whole church, if they say that it is not only in matters of faith and morals, and they deny that it is also in those which concern the discipline and government of the church dispersed throughout the whole world, or that the Pope has only the principal part, but not the absolute fullness of supreme power, let him be anathema. Today is Reformation Sunday. That is the Sunday before the day we celebrate the Protestant Reformation. And as you just heard, there were good reasons to celebrate the Protestant Reformation. Last year, the sermon series fell so perfectly. We were preaching through 2 Timothy and Reformation Sunday fell on 2 Timothy 3. And so we preached in line with the current sermon series about sola scriptura. That the scriptures are alone the only infallible authority for the church. Why was sola scriptura a principle of the Reformation? Well, that is because Roman Catholicism today denies that the scriptures are the sole infallible authority because they believe there is an additional infallible authority who has supreme jurisdiction over the entire world. And that man today is currently a liberal Marxist. And that man, by the way, has made this sermon even more timely because I don't know if all of you saw, but Pope Francis got himself into even more hot water this week. Yeah. That is the man we are supposed to look to and say he has supreme jurisdiction and authority and power, not just over the Christian church, but over the entire world. All governments, all people, all churches, all vocations answer to the vicar of Christ on earth. What does the vicar of Christ mean? This word vicar, it's where we get our word vicarious, right? If we say that person is living vicariously through their children, 
Or in Christian theology, we talk about vicarious redemption, where Jesus dies in our place. Vicar means substitute. What does it mean to be the vicar of Christ on earth? You're Christ on earth. You're his substitute. Christ left and tag-teamed the Pope in his place. This is sort of the, one of the other sides of the issue of sola scriptura, and we are going to focus our time today on the papacy. Although I have already read, uh, there's a lot of infallible, infallible declarations about the papacy from Rome. I read only two of them. Let me just put it in layman's terms. What Roman Catholicism teaches about the Pope. They claim that the Apostle Peter was instituted by Christ as the rock, the foundation that the entire Christian church is built on. And when Christ made Peter the rock of the entire Christian church, the whole Christian church is founded upon Peter. It rests on his shoulders. Christ told Peter that by doing this, because of he's the rock, hell will never prevail against the church. So what does that mean? It means the church can never fall into apostasy. It can't fall into true teaching. So what do we deduce from that? So Peter is the chief infallible stone, even above the other apostles, because Paul wasn't made the rock of the church. Peter alone was. So Peter alone is the chief ruler of all the apostles, and he alone is what keeps the Christian church from falling into apostasy. That means Peter is the infallible ruler of the church. Christ left, but Peter is the rock he left us on, and that rock guarantees that we will never fall into error. But he did more than that. He didn't just make Peter the rock and told him the church will never prevail against you because of this foundation. He gave Peter the keys to the kingdom of heaven. There is no salvation outside of Peter. He is the one who opens and closes the door for you. He is the one who was given the power to bind and to loose. He decides whether you're bound to Christ. He decides whether you're loosed from Christ. There is no salvation outside of communion with Peter. But there's a problem. Peter's been dead a long time. So how can Peter protect the church from apostasy when Peter himself isn't even here? Well, that's why the argument said that Peter, the, the Bible doesn't tell us this, by the way, we just think we know this from church history, eventually became the pastor of Rome, otherwise known as the bishop of Rome. Peter was pastoring over the church in Rome. He was the bishop of Rome. And so the argument is that what Christ gave to Peter, he gave not just to Peter alone, but to his office, to his chair. So Peter governs the church through his successors. So whoever sits in the chair of Peter, the bishop of Rome, whoever is the bishop of Rome, now is governed through, Peter governs through him. He is now the rock. He is the supreme head over all the world, the chief shepherd, the vicar of Christ. That is the doctrine of the papacy. The Pope is the infallible Holy Father who protects the church from apostasy. Now, where on earth does an idea like this come from? Well, there's a variety of answers to that question. But the primary place this comes from 
is from Matthew chapter 16. Would you please open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 16? If you would read with me, beginning in verse 13. Let's investigate this papal claim. Now when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say the Son of Man is? And they said, well, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. He said to them, but who do you say that I am? And Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Then he strictly charged the disciples to tell no one that he was the Christ. So does this text establish the papacy? Does this text support or is in any way consistent with everything we just read? Well, let's look at it. Look back in chapter, or forgive me, look back at verse 13. Let's establish the context. Now when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. But he said to them, but who do you say that I am? And Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. So the context here is Jesus and his disciples are part of Jesus' earthly ministry. They've, they've now gone into a new region and Jesus stops and says, okay, we've been doing a lot of work. I've been doing a lot of work. I'm curious, who do people think that I am? So they start saying what the grapevine, what they've heard on the grapevine, what rumor has it? Who is Jesus? Is he one of the prophets? Is he the fulfillment of Elijah coming back? Is he John the Baptist reincarnated? Who, who is Jesus? And everyone's wrong. Jesus knows they're all wrong. That's not who I am. So Jesus says, but you know what I'm really interested in right now? I'm interested in you guys. Who is it that you say that I am? And this becomes one of the most climactic moments in all of the Gospels. We see throughout the Gospel story this progression of the disciples slowly and slowly learning more and more about who Jesus is. They follow him at the beginning because they're, they're really interested in this guy. But they, they don't know he's the Messiah when he first calls them. But they learn that. They hear his teachings. They see his miracles. And they slowly grow to learn who this man truly is. And so Jesus gets them to do what all Christians everywhere are called to do. To publicly confess who Jesus is. Who do you say that I am? I would argue that's the most important question a human being can possibly ever ask. Who do you say Jesus is? Who is Jesus to you? And so, one of the disciples, Simon, who gets his name changed in this text, you formerly know him as Peter, does what he almost always does in the Gospels. He leads the way. 
Peter is always functioning as sort of the, 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 the ruler of the apostles. Not so much the ruler, but the lead. He almost always speaks on their behalf. And so Peter comes, not just with his own confession, but with the confession of the group. He says, we know that you're not Elijah. We know that you're not Jeremiah. We know you're not just some prophet. What does he say? You are the Christ. You're the Messiah. You're the anointed one of God. The son of the living God. You are the fulfillment of everything the Old Testament told us we should expect. So what is the original context of this chapter? It's not Peter. The focus of this chapter is not who do you say that Peter is. Any interpretation of this text that takes us away from Jesus, that takes us away from the Christ, away from the Messiah, is missing the point. This is not the climactic moment of the ministry when we realize that Peter is the Pope. This is the climactic moment in Jesus' ministry when we come to confess and see that he is the Messiah. By the way, look at how the, look at how the, verse, the chapter ends, or the, the context ends, verse 20. Then he strictly charged the disciples to tell no one that he was the Christ. This text begins and ends with Jesus, not Peter. This is about Jesus being the Christ, Jesus being the Messiah. That's what's in focus here. So Peter, on behalf of the twelve, gives this incredible confession. And so Jesus responds in verse 17 by telling him this, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. This reminds me of uh, John chapter 6, verses 44 through 46. You can mark them down and read them later. Where Jesus tells us that no one comes to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. And it was said in the prophets that all those who come to me would be taught and would learn from the Father. And that I came from heaven not to do my own will, but to do the will of him who sent me. And the will of him who sent me is that I should lose none of those he has given me. You see, isn't this so important for us to remember? The context at the beginning of this passage here is Peter is properly confessing the truth about Christ and he's doing so while reminding us that all the people around him are wrong. And doesn't that offend the sensibilities of our day and age? Where the only heresy is to say there is heresy? Isn't it arrogant to claim you're right and everyone else is wrong? It can be arrogant. But you want to know why it's not arrogant? Because what is the difference between Peter and all of the other Jews getting the wrong answer? What's the difference between them? Is Peter smarter? He just has better training? Better theological training? They're just a bunch of, you know, dumb hillbillies. They just don't know. They're just... If you're a Christian, you're just so much smarter than all those dumb people out there, right? Is that the difference between Peter and everybody else? No, what does the text say? Flesh and blood is not revealed to you. It is my Father in heaven who has drawn you to the Son. Peter was saved by grace alone. Peter was saved because God the Father loved him and showed mercy to him. That's the difference between Peter and everybody else. Jesus recognizes the calling and choosing 
of Peter. He recognizes this true profession of who he is. And so that brings us to verse 18, which is possibly the most important verse in this entire passage, at least as it pertains to the debate of the Reformation. So what does Jesus do in response to Peter's confession? And I tell you, you are Peter. He changes his name from Simon to Peter. And on this rock, I will build my church. What's interesting is that the word Peter, it's Petros, means rock. Peter got his name changed to rock. So if any of you are planning on having more kids and you're looking for a name, just call him Rock. That was Peter's name. He says, Peter, you are rock, and on this rock, I will build my church. So it seems pretty clear, right? Will you be amazed, throughout the history of the church, this question, who or what is the rock of Matthew 16, 18, has not been unfamiliar to the Christian church. Christians for 2,000 years have been discussing What exactly is the church built on? Or who exactly is the church built on? I mean, at first glance, it's pretty clear. It's Peter. You are rock, and on this rock I will build my church. The church is built on Peter. Well, there's a handful of plausible and accurate, well, not accurate, but but possible interpretations of this. The interpretation that I'm probably most drawn to, though I I wouldn't claim certainty on this, is that the rock of the text is not Peter the person, but his faith, his confession. What is the rock that the church is built on? The belief that Jesus is the Christ. That is what the church is built on. Not Peter, but the confession of his faith. And Peter kind of becomes a sign and seal, if you will. Not a seal, but a sign of that confession. What Peter confessed, that is what the church is built on. Now, why would somebody say this? Well, there's a handful of grammatical and historical reasons. One reason is that the word Peter, and then the word rock that Jesus uses, they are both the Greek words for rock, but they're, they're not the same word. They're actually slightly different. Peter is tamed to Petros, which means a stone. But Jesus then says the church will be built on Petros. And there are people who argue there actually is an important distinction between these two words. So he doesn't actually say, you are Petros and on this Petros I will build my uh, church. He says, you are Petros and on this Petros I will build my church. But additionally, grammatically, people have argued that Jesus changes tenses. Right? He doesn't say, you are Peter, and on you I will build my church. He says, you are Peter, verse 18, you are Peter, and on this rock. In the Greek, there's actually a change in tense, and so the argument is that Jesus has actually shifted focus from Peter onto something else. And so there are many, many people, both today and in the history of the church, who would argue that it's Peter's confession, not the man that the church is built on. And that's the one that I lean to, but here's, the, well, here's what I would say, though. I think grammatically, I'll be honest, I think, I think that's kind of a tough case to make. There are plenty of non-Roman Catholic theologians who believe, you want to know who the rock is? Peter. No problem with that, though. 
Let me quote one Protestant theologian who who speaks about this. He says this, All such apologetic rewritings of this passage are in any case besides the point, since there is nothing in this passage about successors to Peter. It is Simon Peter himself, in his historical role, who is the foundation rock. Any link between the personal role of Peter and the subsequent papacy is a matter of later ecclesiology, not exegesis of this passage. Let me put that into more layman's terms. Here's his point. Peter can be the rock. That doesn't make Pope Francis the rock. Pope Francis isn't Peter. There is a huge logical jump that says Peter is the rock, therefore everyone who sits in the seat he may have sitting in is now the rock. That's what we call a non sequitur in logical fallacies. That's a conclusion that doesn't make sense. That's like saying I have two dogs, therefore it will rain tomorrow. Those things have no correlation. Peter is the rock, therefore the bishop of Rome is the rock. Where does the text say that? We don't even know that Peter ever even made it to Rome and pastored there. Let alone that this text is about his office. And that is the key. Even if you want to read Peter's the rock, that is totally fine. But what you have to understand is the man is the rock, not his office. What do we mean by office? That's just what we that's what we call a role, any role of authority. We call officers in the church elders and deacons. They're officers in the church. We call them police officers, people who have roles of authority. And when we study the church, we want to go to the Bible and say, what offices of the church, what authority does the church have according to Scripture? And the papacy is not in the Bible. That's a made-up office. It's a made-up role. It's not in there. There's elders and deacons and there's bishops. And Baptists and Presbyterians and other they'll argue whether there's a difference between bishops and elders. So there's some disagreement. But what everyone agrees, even a lot, many Roman Catholics, that the office of the papacy is a later ecclesiological development. It is not a biblical office. The argument that Jesus was blessing an office here and not a person is ludicrous. Jesus was not making Peter's bishopric the foundation. He made Peter the foundation. And that's only if you go with that interpretation. As a matter of fact, it's not just modern-day Protestant theologians who deny so often that Peter is actually the rock of the church. A very famous study was done in the Middle Ages by a Roman Catholic scholar, a Roman Catholic scholar, a devout Roman Catholic scholar by the last name of Lenoy. And what he did is he scoured the Old Testament, or forgive me, the church history documents. He scoured and looked at all of the references to this text from all of the church fathers. And here's what he found in the interpretation. 17 church fathers claimed Peter was the rock. Now, that doesn't mean they believed in the, the papacy. Remember, that's a leap of logic. That's a later thing. But they argued that Peter is the rock of this, path, of this verse. 17. 16 of them said it was Peter's confession of faith. Eight of them said it was actually a reference to Christ Jesus. Christ is the rock of the church. Or forgive me, 16 of them said Christ, and then eight of them said, no, Peter is representative of the apostles, and all of the apostles are represented in Peter, so all of the apostles are the rock. So here's what we have. Throughout church history, we have 
four plausible interpretations of what the rock is. It's either Peter, it's Peter's confession, it's all the apostles, or it's Christ. Now I want you to know what's happening here. The Roman Catholic Church, which constantly berates Protestants for believing in novel theology, for believing in theology that can't be traced back to the first century, are here making an infallible dogma and anathematizing you from the Christian faith because you refuse to believe something that the majority of the early church did not believe. Count the numbers here. Most of the early church did not believe Peter was the rock. And you have now been kicked out of Christendom for going with the majority opinion of the patristics. They have built an entire foundation, and I would argue the most important foundation to their entire system, ironically, on a very slippery rock. You must reject all of the patristics who disagreed with this interpretation and believe that somehow still it has been the one true faith, the one true church that Christ established for 2,000 years. They have built the most important doctrine to their entire system on a highly ambiguous, questionable, debated interpretation of a passage. One that has never found agreement in the Christian church. And that's the house of cards that this entire authority stands on. Because here's the thing. If Peter isn't the rock, then the papacy is gone. I would argue that if he is the rock, you still haven't proved the papacy. But if he isn't the rock, it's definitely over. What does he continue to say, though? Let's, let's look at the rest. He says in verse 18, You are Peter... You are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Your translation could, it probably has a note that says the gates of Hades. Jesus is building a church. And the problem, if you read the, in the Reformation, the way this is defined and understood is a visible ecclesiastical structure built in Rome. Because here's why. What does Roman Catholicism say is the infallible church? They believe in an infallible church and they told the, the, all of the reformers this was their na- main argument. You guys are, you have your own interpretations and there's no infallible decider between you guys. That's why you've got 22,000 denominations. You can't agree. We have an infallible interpreter who's protecting the church who can tell us what to believe. That's why we're unified and you're not. So the church is infallible and that's their argument here. And, and they get the infallibility of the church because the church will never have the gates of Hades prevail over it, so the church can't fall into apostasy. So here we, ho- here we go. Christ established an infallible church. But you want to know what the problem is with that? What does the word church mean in this passage? You see, does a Roman Catholic believe that every single member of the Christian church is a pope? We're all, and every single Roman Catholic are all infallible? No. It's only the pope. And even the Pope is not always infallible. You see, they say he can have erring private judgments. Roman Catholicism teach the Pope can even be a heretic. They have a whole list of Popes that they've anathematized as heretics. But it doesn't matter because only when the Pope is speaking ex cathedra, the Holy Spirit makes him infallible. 
But even then, it's not enough. He can't just be speaking ex cathedra. He has to speak in harmony with the rest of the bishops. So the papacy is the infallibility of the Pope. But what that means is that one man is sometimes infallible when he says certain things in agreement with other people. And where's that in Matthew chapter 16? But again, where's the problem? Jesus doesn't make those kinds of distinctions. He doesn't say one man in the church with a colleague of the church will be infallible sometimes. He says the whole church, the gates of Hades will never prevail against it. So if this is an expression for an infallible church, then everyone is infallible. Because the word that Jesus uses there is the word that you will always see behind your English word church, and it's ecclesia. And ecclesia never means some special authoritative structure. It means congregation. It means group. Jesus is speaking of his entire body, all the people of Christ. That's what an ecclesia is. It's a congregation. Jesus says, I will build my people, and the gates of hell will never prevail against my people. He doesn't say, I will establish a papal office with the office of cardinals and bishops and deacons, and they will sometimes be infallible. If the gates of Hades prevailing against the church means the church is infallible, I've got good news for you all. You're all popes. Congratulations. You've been promoted. Jesus is talking here about a global victorious group consisting of both Jews and Gentiles, people from every nation, tongue, tribe, and people group. We make up the congregation of God, and that is the church that hell will never prevail against. What Jesus is actually doing here is he is transforming the people of God. He tells them that the gates of Hades, the gates of hell, will never prevail against it. This was, the gates of Hades was a, a, a euphemism for death. To go to Sheol, to go to Hades, to go to the underworld is where you said people went when they died during this state. And Jesus is telling us the church will never die. The church will never be wiped out. And by the way, can we stop for a moment? This is really good news for the apostles, isn't it? Remember where they're at in this point in time. They are basically the only believers. I mean, I know that's not true. Read through the Gospels. There, there are lots of people who have come to believe in Christ, but for the most part, this church that Jesus is starting to build, very small. And by the way, the very next portion of the text that we haven't read today, Jesus tells them, by the way, I'm going to die. And then the Pope says, may it never be. And then what does Jesus say to the Pope? Get behind me, Satan. Isn't this good news for the apostles? I know this seems small right now. I know this seems insignificant right now. But I'm building something here, and it's going to conquer the world. They can kill you. They can't kill the church. They'll persecute you. They can't stop the church. This is really good news for the apostles. Jesus is saying this is not the end of something. This is the start of something. Something incredible the most powerful force in the face of the world, the Christian church. But he continues, after telling them that this church will never die, he tells them, specifically, you would argue, Peter, I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. That's a lot of authority, isn't it? Hard to argue with that, right? couple things to notice. Does Jesus give Peter the keys in this passage? No. I will give you. This is future tense. 
Peter did not receive the keys yet. Peter received a promise to receive the keys. But the next time this comes up, this giving of the keys, guess who is told to be the recipients of it? Peter alone? Turn to Matthew chapter 18. By the way, Matthew chapter 18 begins with, we're not going to read this part, but it begins with the disciples walking around and asking the question, who is the greatest among us? Isn't it interesting that allegedly right after Jesus just made Peter the head apostle and the supreme leader of the entire world, the apostles are having a a conversation about who is the greatest among us? Apparently they didn't get the memo. But Jesus clears it up for him in that text, right? He says, guys, were you not listening back in Caesarea? It's, it's Peter. He's your head. He's your infallible leader. No. Who is the greatest among the apostles? Whoever serves. Which, by the way, is consistent. Let me, let me go on a quick rabbit trail. This is really important, though. This is consistent with all of the New Testament's presentation of Peter. Don't you think that if Peter was really given an authority like this, it would have shown up somewhere outside of Matthew 18? When did an apostle ever, ever in the New Testament give any indication that they saw Peter as being some special, supreme, infallible leader of them? When have you ever seen one of the apostles say, listen, if there's a dispute between you, ask Peter. When in a debate that the apostles ever have with the Jews, do they say, hey, sorry guys, uh, you, you might not think Christ isn't, you might think he's not the Messiah, but I've got bad news for you. We've got the trump card. We've got the infallible vicar of Christ on earth, the infallible Pope. He sides with us, so... The apostles give us no indication in the rest of the Gospels or in any of their letters that they saw Peter as operating in a unique role. As a matter of fact, we just got got done preaching through Galatians where Paul establishes his equal authority with Peter and the way he establishes it was by reminding them that he had to put Peter in his place. It was Peter who was abandoning the Gospel with his lifestyle and Paul had to say, shame on you, you infallible vicar of Christ on earth. Jerusalem, the the, the famous Acts Council, Acts 15, the Jerusalem Council. All of the apostles meet with the Jewish leaders to debate this issue of whether Gentiles can be saved without circumcision. A council meets. We call it the first council of the church. This apostolic council. And you know what doesn't happen? They don't just say, listen, Peter's here. End End of discussion. What you see in that council is the apostles acting as a unified, equal group. Peter starts the discussion. James and Barnabas pick up and make strong arguments. And then it is James, or forgive me, Paul and Barnabas, and then it is James who concludes the council. It is James who says, here's what we're going to do. Peter is not acting as a pope in that council. Peter does not identify himself as a pope in either of his epistles. And at the end of one of his epistles, he actually refers to himself as Peter, your fellow elder. Not your supreme elder. Not your infallible elder. He's talking to the pastors. He says, I'm one of you. This is a fellow elder. The New Testament never shows any sign that the apostles saw Peter as a superior. But I digress. Look at Matthew chapter 18, beginning in verse 15. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. 
But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you, that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him to be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Truly, I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Sound familiar? So who was given this special power of binding and loosing? Just Peter? No. Just the apostles? No. Every Christian church. Local, gospel, Bible-believing Christian churches have the power of binding and loosing. We've all been given the keys. It's not just one papal office. It's not one man. So what does this mean then, back in Matthew 18? What does this mean to bind and loose? What are the keys? Well, the keys, I would agree that it is entrance into the kingdom of heaven, but what do we mean by that? It is the ability to rightfully teach the word of God, to rightfully proclaim the gospel, because that is how people are introduced into the kingdom of heaven. That's how they get there. That's why the book of Romans says, how will they hear without a preacher? People need someone to open the door of heaven to them. They need a proper authority with the proper gospel to say, here's the gospel, here's your entrance into the kingdom of God. And by the way, this is not some new infallible thing. In Matthew 23, verse 13, where Jesus is ripping the Pharisees to shreds, he tells the Pharisees that the reason he was so upset with them is because they had the keys to the kingdom, and he tells them that through their false teaching, they shut the door of the kingdom of God onto people. The Pharisees had the keys to the kingdom, but they abused those keys by teaching a false gospel which metaphorically locked people from the kingdom of heaven. The keys is the gospel the scriptures, the biblical message that we as the ambassadors of Christ, the administers of the new covenant, have the authority to preach the gospel and bring people into the kingdom of God. By the way, another thing is this, the Greek here for binding and loosing is very difficult to render. It's very, very difficult. I won't get into all of the uh, nuances of that, but a literal translation of this, see, when we read this, we tend to read it actually backwards from what the Greek is actually saying. We read it as Peter does something and then heaven does it too, right? Whatever you bind shall be bound. Whatever you loose shall be loosed. But you know, there's another way of understanding that. And I would argue that if you were to study the Greek, this would be the better way of understanding it. Is it's, it's works backwards. Peter is binding what has already been bound. Peter is loosing, loosening what has already been loosed. Whatever you bind shall be bound. It's not saying it's going to happen. It's saying if you bind it, you will find it's been bound in heaven. Peter is responding to heaven. Heaven is not responding to Peter. And that's why in Matthew 18, after it says that the local church practices excommunication, we quote-unquote loose people from the kingdom of God. Jesus says, there I tell you, where two or three more are gathered, I am in their presence. Jesus is saying, you have loosed them and heaven agrees. Whatever you loose has been loosed in heaven. So this is not some special privilege given to the Bishop of Rome. To forgive sins and infallibly declare doctrine that you must believe. This is the authority of the Christian church to hold the keys to the kingdom of God and it is our job to take those keys and go out into Roswell and open the door. 
So in conclusion, Peter is not a pope. That is a later ecclesiological development that has been read into this text. It is not an office or a belief system that was pulled from this text. But there's a couple other things I want us to, to know about this before I really drive it home with our final conclusion, and, and that is this. This is not just a wrong teaching. There, there are a lot of teachings out there I disagree with, but it's not that big of a deal. This is not one of them. This is not just an error. This is serious and offensive. First and foremost, let me just say this. We do believe in a vicar of Christ. We do believe, to use my silly analogy earlier, Jesus did tag team someone in. But it wasn't Peter. You know what Jesus told the apostles? He told them, one day I'm going to leave, and they start to cry. And Jesus says, don't cry. It's good for you that I leave. What on earth could possibly be the case that Jesus could actually utter those words? All we want in the Christian life is for Jesus to come back. We want to be with Jesus. And here Jesus is telling the apostles, trust me, you want me to go. Why? Because when I leave, I will send to you the comforter, the helper, and he will guide you into all truth. We have a vicar of Christ on oath, on earth. We have a vicar of Christ, and it's not some liberal, heretical bishop in Rome. It's the Holy Spirit of God. He is Christ's substitute on this earth. The vicar of Christ, the Pope, this is not just an error, it's offensive. And it's not just offensive, it's dangerous. There are, there are very few errors that are as dangerous as this. I want you to imagine, assume that it is as erroneous as the Reformation said. Now what we have are billions of people over the last 500 years being told, this man is infallible, you have endangered your salvation to disagree with him, and he's a heretic. We have a heretic leading the world. Does that sound like just some common theological error? The great Charles Hodge I'm reading his systematic right now, actually, as we speak. He says this, There is something simple and grand in this theory of papal infallibility. It is wonderfully adapted to the tastes and wants of men. Because it relieves them of any personal responsibility. Everything is decided for them. Their salvation is secured by merely submitting to be saved by an infallible, sin-pardoning, grace-imparting church. We know that when Christ was on earth, men did not believe or obey him. We know when the apostles were still living and their authority was still being concerned by, confirmed by signs and wonders and miracles and the gifts of the Holy Ghost, the church was still even then distracted by heresies and schisms. If any in their sluggishness and laziness are disposed to think that a perpetual body of infallible teachers would be a blessing they all must admit that the assumption of an infallibility by the ignorant, the erring, and the wicked must be an evil inconceivably great. The Romish theory, if true, might be a blessing. But if false, it is a most awful curse. This is no minor error. The, Roman, the, the Protestant Reformation was not an overreaction. But I don't want us to end on such a negative, bleak note. 
I don't want to end so serious and somber. Why? Because Matthew 16 is not a negative, bleak text. Folks, we need to shift gears now and be filled with joy. What is it that we learn in Matthew 16 if not that Peter is the Pope? Well, let me remind you of some of the things that we have discussed today. Christ has started and is building His church. And that church can never be destroyed. You know what can't happen in November? The conquering of the Christian church. Can't happen. Christ won't allow it. The Holy Spirit won't allow it. You are part of an unstoppable movement. You are part of an inconquerable organization. And by the way, what does the text tell us? The text tells us in verse 18 that the gates of Hades shall not prevail against it. You want to know what's so funny about this? We always read this with a defensive posture. We read this text as if the church is huddled in a corner and Hades is shooting its arrows and slinging it and throwing and trying to kill us, but guess what? Hades will never prevail. But let me ask you a question. Look at verse 18. What is hell's weapon? What's the quote-unquote weapon of that text? Gates. When's the last time you've gone on an attack with a gate? You hear someone in the middle of your house at night, so you go out and grab your fence. What are gates for? Offense? Defense. Who's doing the fighting in this text? Not Hades. The church. It is all of hell huddled in a corner, begging and pleading that the church would stop. But they will not be successful. We are on the attack. We are storming the gates of hell. And hell will not prevail in their defense. Christ is telling us of a church that is going to overcome the world. Christ and the Holy Spirit, through his people, are going to win the world and slaughter the demons. This is a war charge, and it's a promise of victory. You're winning. There's this phrase I hear all the time, the wrong side of history. You're, they're going to be on the wrong side of history. You're going to be on the wrong side of history. Let me tell you, you are on the right side of all of history. You're winning. We're winning. I don't care what you're reading about is happening in America. I don't care. We are winning. We're going to win. And it's not because of us. It's not because of Peter. It's not because of Rome. It's because of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ.